Thank you, guys. Uh, yesterday, we had a, a parenting sort of seminar, conference, right? And uh, a number of you were here six hours yesterday. And so, well done, right? Oh, my word. You've been in this church. You've hit your quota. And your kids, too. But, but it was good. And if you were here, you heard um, Kirk Martin encouraging us to have eyes and ears to see into our children their gifts, their passion, and their story. Because in order to have eyes for that, to see that, and for you to speak into it, to affirm them of how God has wired them. And so this conversation that we're having is, is one that is so needed at every age of our life. And it's not one you do once, it's one that's sort of continuing to come on, where we have people around us who are engaging with us, looking at us, and able to speak into our lives. So in this series called Find Your Place, we're trying to identify how God, he's calling us, he's inviting us into this destiny of identifying a masterpiece mission. And this is a, this is a lifelong journey, but it's one where God is marking the path along the way. And so this is a holy journey. I hope you've taken the assessment because the assessment is it's, it's an arbitrary quiz, right? To help you engage in conversation and reflection because that's where the holiness is, right? That's where the uniqueness, that's where the power is. It's in the reflecting and the conversation. The quiz is just a quiz that somebody has created to help you remember and to talk and to create space for people who know you and love you and, and see you regularly for them to speak in and affirm what God has done in you. And you need that. You're desperate for it. Without their voice, without their input, we don't, we don't take the steps that God's inviting us into. From the beginning, he said it wasn't good for us to be alone in that. And there's multiple voices in there. And so if you don't have those, if you don't, if you don't have those voices, um, may, you, may that alarm you. May, may I say there's more for you. There's more to be, to be for that. And so uh, if it's a small group, I mean, take more chances in order to have that. So today we're wanting to continue this conversation. Uh, how many of you have taken the assessment? Raise your hands high so I can see who hasn't. What's that? Perfect. You've logged in. I've seen that. My goal is 150 people. I need 28 more to do it. To hit my goal and I receive a bonus from Genesis. <laughs> I get nothing. But it would be the joy of knowing that 150 of you are at least attempting to engage in a conversation somewhere. I know it's not on the small groups, but if you haven't done it yet, do it. It's, it, um, it's free. It doesn't, right? There's, there's links everywhere. There's a CR code, or QR code. Is that what the technology is called? QR code. On your, in, the, in the program, where you can just turn your phone on and look at it, and it'll pull up the assessment, and you can take it. So they need 28 more people to do it to hit that, hit that goal, that, which is an arbitrary number that I made up, right? So, but I would long for that. Above and beyond just taking it, I would love if you told somebody, right? If you didn't have a small group in it where you could talk about what was coming up in it in conversation, that would be good. 
So last week we talked about these gifts that God has given us, and we're using the story of David that he has given us. Um, in David's story, there was a sling and there was a harp. The sling being these sort of natural abilities that David had, and the harp, which represented some supernatural ability that when he played that, the demonic fled. Right? Even though it's kind of really kind of crazy for us to, to, to understand that there are certain abilities that have way more power because God is in them. And we've been given these gifts, and these are conversations that we need to engage in. But today, we want to talk about passions. And this is the other part, because we're kind of saying how we, we can use these gifts, passions, and our story in order to triangulate, right, GPS, in order to kind of say, here's where we are, and we get this sense of how we're to move according to how God has wired us, where he's placed us, and the things he's birthed within us. And so that's what this conversation is about. And, and maybe it's just to affirm you and saying, oh my gosh, you're using these and God's at work, continue on these paths and just continue to be aware, right? And but maybe for others, you're kind of saying, oh man, God has given me this and I, I'm only just encouraged to use it more. Or maybe there is a passion that's in your soul, that's deep within you and we've been afraid in order to step into because we don't know how or where. And our encouragement is for the things of God to continue to gain momentum and speed so that we can take those steps. And that is not easy, and I don't want to make it light. It could be simple, but it also could be extremely demanding and costly. But it's God who's directing these things for his good in the world. And I believe that we will never regret saying yes to what God has for us. So, Father, uh, Illuminate our minds and our hearts in this conversation. Would you let spill over by your spirit what could God, what would spill over in our memory out of this talk? And would you give us words that would spill over in conversation with others? That would, to, that we could be encouraged. We could encourage others. It'd be for what you wanted. So God, speak to us today. Amen. So today's big idea, in my masterpiece mission, in your masterpiece mission, my missions, or my, sorry, my passions show me who and what I was made to fight for. Your passions show you who and what you were made to fight for. And this, bat, this language of fighting is, is a... Um, not a, it's a figurative language that is all over the New Testament scriptures. It's not literal, meaning that we're actually going to grab weapons and fight in the way that this world fights. But no, we've been given spiritual weapons, wisdom from God, in order to fight in a battle that we are called to engage in. See, there's a paradigm of how you can look at the world, and all of us have one. You, you got a paradigm of what you think life consists of. Some people's paradigm is we live, you try to do the best with it as much as you can. If you're a good person, at the end of your days, God says, good job. And the paradigm is the story of that, live as life as good as you can and, and, and be received by God. Other paradigms are this world is hard and you just try to make it through it the best you can. So there's multiple paradigms that we all have them, but one paradigm is the paradigm of the scriptures is that there's a battle, there's a war that has been waged. 
over good and evil. And you and me have been plopped right down into the story of it. It's not at the beginning, and it's not at the end. Decisive victories and battles have been won, but it is not over. We've been told how the story ends. It's a promise, and it ends with this, Jesus returning, which is absolutely certain. And when he returns, all will be made right. Every injustice held accountable for, judgment dispensed in the only way that God can, that no one else, a new heaven and a new earth will be created. And God will be in the center of it. And there'll be no more weeping, no more crying, right? That's the end. That's the, that's the promise. It's returning. And Peter said, hey, it's not here yet. It's not here yet because God's being patient. He's being patient for people to return to him. So there's work that's being done for people to return to him. That's why God is being slow to his promise of returning. Because he's being patient. And there is some work to be done. There's a battle to be engaged for the hearts and minds of humanity to return to their God. But there, here we are, not at the beginning of the story and not at the end of the story, but after the decisive victory and the, and the victory of Jesus, but yet we've been plopped down here into this battle where evil is still present. I remember, I, don't, I can't remember what year it was, but it was in the 90s. Um, I was traveling, playing in a band with Nate, and we were in Seattle, uh, Washington, and uh, Saving Private Ryan that, that movie came out. And we, we had the night off, and we, wa- uh, we walked from our hotel to this movie theater. And it was the largest movie theater I'd ever been in my entire life. I think it held 2,000 people. I've never been in a movie theater like this in my life, right? It was huge. And I think it was like a midnight showing of Saving Private Ryan. For those of you who've seen it, right, it's the, it's the war story that starts with sort of D-Day. And it's a story of a certain group of uh, Soldiers who have to go and save Private Ryan, who all of his brothers have died in this war. And they're like, oh my gosh, we cannot wipe out an entire family of brothers. I think three of them had already died. And they're like, okay, we got to pull this guy out. And so their job was to do that. But it begins with the Normandy fight. And for those of you who've seen it, and for those who um, have seen that movie, it is intense, right? And many people who fought and who, who stormed the beaches of Normandy said that it was the most realistic and accurate depiction of the chaos of that day, right? And, and for, I felt like I was having post-traumatic stress disorder from watching it, right? I have not, and I'm not joking, I have not watched that movie again. It's too much, right? For those of you who've seen it, it's too much. But, but can you imagine if they were, and there was a, such a time when that, that was happening, right? This battle was taking place and it was so intense. Can you imagine even for a second, that where, where this scene is unfolding, and all of a sudden there's a young family with their two kids and dogs deciding to have a picnic on the beach, eat their lunch and sandwiches in the midst of this battle as if nothing was happening. And the reality is, we would, that would be crazy, that'd be absurd, they, we would say, you're in trouble, right? But yet there is a reality that there is this, like, there is a battle that is going on. And it's not as, uh, it's just as present and just as visible as that battle, but in a different way, right? There, there is a war. And so the reality is, is that many people live this way today. 
and daily, as if there's no battle. There's no war that's being engaged. We live in a world at war, but rather than taking our own unique sort of battle position and battle station assigned to us through our masterpiece mission, we seek to spend our passions on diversions and entertainment. And so today, when we talk about this battle, hear me again. We are not talking about using physical violence, physical tools and weapons against enemies. We're talking about a spiritual engagement where God has given us spiritual weapons of warfare that are different than the ones that hurt people. We're talking about a different enemy. And so each one of us is born into this world at war, a spiritual war, and our masterpiece mission is our battle station. This is a paradigm for seeing the world. So Ephesians 6, it's not the only, we, we, when we were going through this, uh, it was called We Were Made For More, we looked at this text in Ephesians, right? In Ephesians 6, it's this one where it uses this paradigm, this language, that something is going on in the world, more so than maybe we are even pulled into. We're being distracted to not believe this. So here's Paul's words, or the author of Ephesians' words. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand... Right, this language here, do you see it in here? This, this language, and this is not the only text, it's kind of laced through the New Testament scriptures of this enemy, a battle of principalities, of wickedness, of the demonic that's in there. This one mentions all those things, devil schemes and rulers and authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's being described is a massive conflict that's far deeper and more profound than we can fully comprehend. And when we face this massive conflict that we can't fully comprehend, we face giants of this war that we're in of like poverty, disease, illiteracy, racism, sex trafficking. And we think about this war that's at play and we think, well, this is just human dysfunction at play and but there's also systemic demonic forces and systemic demonic evil. Jesus was on a cosmic liberation movement to liberate people from sin, death, and the devil. We're invited to engage in this liberating work of Jesus. Jesus, this liberating work was the work he proclaimed when he showed up in the synagogue after he was filled with the Spirit of God and he recited the words of the prophets that was handed to him. This is in John 4. And he said, oh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover the sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.
There's a battle language. We're invited to engage in this. And so as we've been going through this, that there, there is a war in our masterpiece mission. There's been a unique uh, battle station of sorts for each of us to take our place, to stand in there and to engage, to engage in this battle. We've been going, last week we looked at the story of David, and for this week and next week we're going to continue in that. And so David's story is just sort of almost, um, could it be a picture, could it be a motif for us, for understanding our engagement? And so in that sense, we're much like David, in that we face a great enemy who far surpasses our strength and abilities. But we have a crucial role to play in David's battle, one of them that was iconic, as we said, looked at last week, was the story of Goliath, Goliath, this giant in the land, right? We have a crucial role to play in slaying these Goliaths as well. God asks us to step in and to fight, to engage in the battle, to rely, to re, to rely upon him for the defeat of these enemies. And when we don't walk in faith of understanding how God has gifted us naturally and supernaturally and we don't understand our passions, we end up ignoring our responsibilities. And in the book that we're reading, the writers say we end up looking like drunken sailors on leave, fighting each other rather than keeping our focus on fighting the real enemy. If we fail in order to enter into our passion-revealed battle stations. We end up fighting the wrong people in the wrong battles. Have you ever found yourself in that? Fighting referees at sports games? Fighting traffic in the people in there cutting into you and slowing you down? Fighting cashiers? All the modern annoyances of life? That becoming our battle? No, we were meant to fight in another way. And our masterpiece mission, our passions show us, they show me but the who and the what I was made to fight for, and they show the who and the what you were made to fight for. So do you know what your passions are and the who and the what that you were made to fight for? Questions? Well, let's look at the, here's, here's David, right? This is in 1 Samuel, verse 17, verses 3 to 7. So the Philistines, this is the Goliath, right? The Philistines and the Israelites, they faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of evil. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat um, of, of male armor. It weighed 125 pounds. He also wore a bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was so heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Now this story, this giant, it was so iconic because there was a little guy against the big guy. And there's these giants, there's these things where it's like, okay, this is too big for me. And the thing that the authors here are dealing with our passions and this motif of David and Goliath dealing with our passions and our story and our masterpiece mission, could we think of the injustices in the world and the things that move us into action, could we, could we see them as Goliaths? I mean, they kind of are, right? The, the big issues in this world are so big. 
there's a leadership book, and there's certain writers who talk about the difference between adaptive challenges and technical challenges. And technical challenges are things when you come on issues that you have the money, the resources, and the mental capacity to solve. You know how to do them. We've solved this problem before, and we can fix it. But an adaptive challenge is this. You don't have all what it takes to solve it. You have to pull on a collective people into multiple spheres, into multiple uh, agencies, looking at the problem from a ton of different angles in order to even to, to move that dial forward. And every one of the big injustice issues of the world is an adaptive challenge. It's huge. So when you want to engage in a conversation about homelessness, it's never just about addiction. It's never just about um, education. It's never just about mental illness. It's just never just about racism playing a part of that. Right? It, it's so complicated from tons of different angels. And so for all of the issues in the world, sex trafficking and racism and, and poverty and our climate and this thing, they're so huge, they're like giants. So could we think of all these injustices, giants in the land, the Goliaths, the Goliaths that must be slayed. And there's many people who have gone after them, right? People are going after the, the giants of, that need to be slayed, such as uh, allowing children not to die of dehydration, right? Even though there's thousands and thousands of the do that die in impoverished areas, Right? These are giants to be slayed. Giants in the land. So David's response to this giant in the land when he sees this giant taunting and everyone else is afraid, he says this. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing the Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? You know, can you hear this? He steps in and he is, he is moved to engage, even as a boy, unarmed, not a part of the army. He's moved. He's saying, well, what's going to happen? How could this happen? Something inside of him, the, the, the ground is being shifted and he's, he's being pulled into it. He's responding. And so what does he do? So he sees this battle, he's running, and so this is in 1 Samuel 17. This is after he's agreed to fight, and he has his sling, and when the giant sees him, Goliath, he scoffs at him, and it's like, this is your best warrior? This is a boy. I'm going to eat you alive. And David replies to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. In verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran to meet him. Hey, right, this is, again, we're, we're looking at this as a motif, but it's so interesting. He is not disengaged. He's not like, oh crap, what did I get myself into? But he runs to him. Let's step to the line. And he runs to engage. He's pulled in. 
Something rose within him. His passion was awakened. So our big question that we want to ask today, what's your passion? And for this, we've got some passion questions. And we really want you to kind of identify what's your Goliath. Right, so we've got three passion questions. But that first one, I guess that is four. What's your Goliath? And here's some questions that can help you. Today, what we're going into and in your small groups is just helping you engage in conversation to say, what's God doing with these holy passions that he has given you that are so good? The three that we're going to look at is, who do you want to fight for? And the next question is, what battle are you running toward? And the third question, how do you seek to influence that cause and those people? This already might be happening, and this is only going to clarify the way you're moving already. But maybe it's not. So the first one, this first question of identifying our Goliath is, is the who. And this is a people passion if you took the test. There's a group of people that your heart, your soul, you're stirred towards. This is just what's in you. With some time and reflection, it can come out. The questions that could help you with this are these three. What group of people do you find that you intuitively care about? Next question. To what people has God sent you? In other words, whom do you sense God is moving you toward for the purpose of his mission? And the third one. To what people can you be a missionary? And this is one of our values. And by missionary, we mean this. Missionaries move in and become one with the people in a particular culture. To which people do you think God has called you to move in and become one with? These are the people questions. And I know many of you have these things that have, that have moved you, right? I mean, if, if Nate was here, you would hear the stories of foster care, right? That have moved and aligned him and Tina's hearts to these children and to their birth parents. To care for them, and his heart has moved towards that battle of knowing there's, what, 300,000 children in the foster care system in Michigan alone? I, I, you don't double-check that fact. That's probably not accurate. But there's a number. Here, here's this reality. There's a number of kids in that, in that system that are needing people whose battle positions is to defend them. In, the, um, in one of the greatest traumas of life being pulled from a parent. For those of you who have experienced that, it is trauma that deeply shapes you. So what are the people passions? I can remember with some of our small group leaders, and for many of you, sometimes it's like the people of like, oh, the homeless, right? Those disadvantaged, the poor, identifying with them. Some people, that was with uh, Melinda and Bev and, and Sandy and all Pat's a part of that and Jenny's a part of that group and they've identified a people that are the, the, the unseen, the forgotten, the left behinds. That's a people, right? They're looking for them. Who's the unseen? Who's the forgotten? Who's the left behind? For, for whatever reason, these women's hearts and souls are stirred towards them to say, we see you. In the same way that God who showed up before Hagar and was seen, right? God saw her and showed himself to her. It's a passion. Where are the people? For me, um, for my people passions, fathers is a, is a people passion of mine and engaging in, in with men 
and conversations is a people passion of mine. It's a part of why I actually like to barbecue. It connects to that gift. One of my gifts is hospitality. And so I like to have people near. And even recently, in the last couple times that I've cooked, John has been one who came and sat with me as we worked a fire and we talked about life, right? And Derek Crawford came over and we sat and we worked a fire and we engaged in life in this intimate setting, we hang out in the backyard, our kids playing together, right? It, it's an avenue to engage in real life things. It's an avenue to be hospitable and have people over and share what we have and engage in real conversations, and as men, we really struggle with that. I want to be a part of conversations for men. I mean, yesterday it was so powerful to kind of hear. It's like, fathers, affirm your kids. Affirm them. See their gifts. See their passions and speak into it. Your, your kids need it. I can remember Scott, when he did this, uh, Scott Foster did this quiz for us at our men's retreat, and there was 50% of the men said, I either know for certain or I'm uncertain, or I'm like, I don't really know. But I either, either their answer was, my dad doesn't love me, or I'm not sure if he loves me. 50% answered that way, <laughs> right? I mean, part of the reality, the way that we were designed was for our parents, our father, to delight in his children, to delight in them, for them to know the father delights in his kids. The prophet of Malachi writes in the scripture saying, oh, I'm going to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the children back to their fathers. Because there's a huge, huge distortion there where those hearts have been turned away. And we see the effects everywhere of that distortion and that, and that, and that absence and that lack. And so that's, that's one, of my, one of my passions, that group. I think it spills over into everything that we see happening today in the abuse of women by the hands of men, right? It's because uh, when, when I was in sixth grade, who were teaching me about what it was to be a man were my friends who were 12 and their older brothers. And they're stupid, Right? Do you know what a 12-year-old boy and a, and a 15-year-old know about what it is to be a man? Zero. Exactly. But that's who we were learning from. That's where we learned our practices about what you do when you're on a date with a girl and what it is to be a man. And so I still look, it's like every week you look about what someone with power does to a woman, right? Where do they learn that? Well, because the, the fathers aren't saying, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm going to be the first to tell you, here's how we live, right? I mean, John and I were just having this conversation about his 10-year-old boys. It's like, oh, my gosh, when do I start talking about this? I'm like, I don't know, but I was in sixth grade, and my friends were already talking about crazy crap they were wanting to do with girls, right? And, and then we were already getting that idea that's what it is to be a man, to grow up. No, that's actually called abuse, that's what we're being taught to do, to sexually abuse women, to use them. That's abuse. And so, so can you hear passion? And so that's where it comes, right? Is there a battle there? Hell yeah. So what's yours? What is yours? What is your people one? Where has God moved your heart? 
Sometimes it connects to your story. I know that for Tom, this guy here has written two books on grieving, right? I don't know if that was a big, for grieving for, as a widow, right? And for the grieving people losing a spouse, it, it's something that's come emerging, I'm, I'm assuming, right? I'm, there's a passion there. So that's that. What's your people passion? The next one is, well, what's your cause passion? Your cause passion is found by looking at the issues or causes that you naturally feel drawn to. These causes captivate you, and you find yourself researching them in your spare time. And here are a few questions that will help you uncover your cause passion. What group of causes lights you up? What issue of injustice makes you want to run to the battle? And if there was one area where you could make a difference, what would it be? See, that's that's a challenge sometimes when it comes to big causes. We don't think we can make a difference. And we've kind of heard, you've heard that whole analogy of like the, um, the starfish and like all the starfish are coming up in the ocean. Here's one person throwing them back in. There's thousands of them, right? And like, oh, well, I'm, I'm helping this starfish. It, but that, that is accurate. That is true. Adaptive leadership theory, because many of us, when we think about the bigger issues in the world, we think that people who, who with formal authority are going to take care of it. Now, they have a part to play. Those are our politicians. Those are people who are writing policies in our world. Those are people who are doing that. They have a responsibility to take care of these things. But, but you think they're going to solve those? They can't. They're too big. And some of them are incompetent, nor do they really care about them. No. It's not a passion. They're just in the authority to have to do it. They may not want to or even know how. They might even use those causes in order to pull you in for their own power. That's what we see as the church. We do know we've been played, right? Politically. So what's your cause? What are the things? There is a part, adaptive leadership theory says you don't need formal authority, but leadership is taking action. And you know where I see that? Beth Lucas. Sorry, Beth. I hung out with Beth. I, don't, I, I, uh, I grabbed coffee with Beth, you know, just sort of catching up and talking about the phase of life that she's in, the transition with all her kids in school, and a mom who loves the family, cares for them, super cool person in this church, right? And so, um, and arbitrarily, she just begins talking about Thanksgiving and in schools with their kids, telling the stories about the pilgrims and Indians. And you guys know the story, right? I mean, the pilgrims were there, and the Indians came along, and they really were kind to each other, and they shared their food, and they ate together, and everybody survived, and that was really good. And you know what? And you wear your, your Indian hats, and you wear your, um, you wear your pilgrim hat and stuff, and um, the world was really good because these people were really nice to each other. Do you know what that story is? Tom, what would you call that story? A lie. A lie. Right? He's a, he a his, historian, right? He's a teacher of history. It's not an accurate story. So why are we telling that to our kids? Because that's not what we did to the Indians. We didn't share dinner with them. <laughs> we massacred them. Right? I mean, and so 
that's where passions come. And so Beth was kind of saying, you know what, I think I'm going to have a conversation with a kindergarten teacher that my kid's in school and saying, hey, have you thought about this? Because she was raised in a place in Mount Clemens that has a Native American tribe. And they didn't tell that story there because it's offensive and not true. And because they were contextually aware of the people. And she was raised in that. And she's passionate about that story. And she's like, huh, I, maybe I'm going to engage in a conversation. And it's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to go to them and say, oh, gosh, that story is really a lie. Should we be passing that on to our kids? And everybody's like, it's no big deal. Well, yeah, but it's a lie. It's actually not true. We could tell a different story. We could make some new patterns. We could tell some other really good stories that were true in order to build healthy and honest and true humans, right? And so I shared that with Jess. I was like, oh, Jess, because we had a daycare over here. I'm like, do we... Do we kind of perpetuate this lie even with our young four and five-year-old minds? She's like, I don't know. And then she engaged in conversations with our teachers and got push. What are you doing messing with our traditions? Because initially we do, we push, right? We're like, what are you doing? Are we just trying to be politically correct? No, we're trying to be disciples of Jesus Christ who are truth-tellers and who can point at evil and wickedness in the world and call it what it is and not call it good, and not rewrite history in a way to make ourselves the heroes. We point out the villainous part of humanity that exists in all of us. Murderers and adulterers are the most part of all of us, and your parents. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. And we point it out not to shame us, but to move us towards the purposes of God. So what's your cause? Beth is being even moved in this, and I don't bet that that was you, but the women's ministry to get, to, to get her, right? They're, they're reading a book that's engaging in a conversation on uh, racism, but from a, a black woman's perspective of saying, hey, let me, let me help you understand what it's like to be a, a black woman in the engagement in the world. Let me, let me teach you, right? And so she's like, oh, Let me pull women around that can be a part of this conversation as my way of continuing to help a conversation that's good. Right, so that's that's a cause that somebody's then taking action into in their part, right? That's beautiful. I love it. And so for me, one of my causes is racism as well. That moves me. And partly it's because, you know, I got a four-year-old black son, right? That has been a part of my story that's shaping that. But I got these little pieces in my past, in my early story, of being moved by those conversations and still trying to figure out what does this mean to engage in this? And, and enough of a, a number of us went a couple weeks ago to the um, Charles H. Wright Museum, the African American Museum, for a lecture by a professor and a historian named Ibram uh, Kendi, and he wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and he, he wrote that book saying, oh, um, we want to begin to use the language of anti-racism, not racism, right? And, and, and this whole idea of, of racism, it's really, it's kind of interesting, because when you bring it up, and I had a friend who, who told me this, he's like, Bo, if you start talking about racism at church, you're going you're gonna to really upset people. Because um, the ma- majority of whoever it is, and no one, no one says they're racist. You do know that, right? Even um, the alt-right, whatever the weirdo groups are, 
they don't say they're racist, right? So no one says they're racist. So it's like, um, and he says, Bo, you start talking about race stuff, you're going to feel, you're going to feel pushback. And he says, you're going to feel demonic pushback. You're going to see people's bodies tense up, and you're, and you're going to, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see it in your church. Arms crossed, tightening body. Now, I'm not saying if your arms are crossed right now that you're a racist, right? So <laughs> don't worry about your, you're okay, you're okay, you're not racist. But he even said this, he's like, hey, um, in our world, there's no such thing as not being a racist. He wants to, he says, that's not even a thing anymore. You're either, so there's no non-racist, so you're either a racist or you're anti-racist. Right? And so, and what an anti-racist can do, and he, and, and he even says, here's the way to know what an anti-racist is. They can confess racist ideas that they've had. <laughs> That's how you know an anti-racist. If someone can't confess, they're racist. And he leads this whole conversation as a black man, confessing his anti-racist ideas that he had that said black people are all the problem. Right? And so this book that Beth is driving is to help to show some, some even, maybe even racist ideas, some things, so we can say, oh, I didn't know that. And we can confess the postures and things that we've done and move a different way. Sorry for moving that direction. I'm not sorry for moving that direction. That's part of my passion, right? So that's where, that's where it comes out. So what's your, what's your cause, right? What is the cause the thing that is, that is moving you. The, uh, uh, Dan Allender says this, right? This was this whole thing about the cause. He says that in Romans 16.20, the scriptures say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there's a battle for you to engage in where the head of Satan will be crushed under your feet. And he puts it this way, what's your hell no in the world? As long as you live, as long as I'm alive, here's the battle I'm going to engage in. Against homelessness, against poverty, against sex trafficking, against engaged fathers, against racism. Right? What's your hell no in the world? Against illiteracy. Against, it could, it, that, what, what is it? Your cause. The final one is your influencing passion. And we have talked about this before. This is connected to um, Ephesians 4. And for those of you who have gone through the, the fivefold, where there was five kind of um, passions or gifts that God gives. The teach, it's called the apest. There's the apostle. There's the prophet. There's the evangelist. There's the shepherd. And there's the teacher. And this is about your influencing passion. One of the is the passion that drives. What is the one that moves you to engage this sort of passion that God has given you to move to engage, and then how do you influence people with this? So if you took the test, it, it showed you two of those. It showed you a primary one, and it showed you a secondary one. This is from Ephesians 4, when it says these gifts have been given. The apostle sends and extends. The prophet questions and critiques. The evangelist invites and gathers. The shepherd protects and provides. The teacher explains and organizes. And so these five styles listed are not just given to a few people, they're given to everyone. Not just leadership roles that reflect the calling of a few people, but they're lifelong influencing styles given to every follower of Jesus. 
And so how do you typically influence and which of these is your passion? So right now we're doing that boxes of love crew, right? Awesome. Maddie and Andy are a part of that, right? I would think that the primary passion of crew, right, it, it's evangelism, right? They want to share the gospel with students. They want to raise them up and disciple them, but it's to share the gospel, that's, that, that's a primary passion for crew. They keep that before them. Now, they're going after all these things, but the primary one, in these boxes of love, the primary passion is evangelism. They want to share the love of Jesus, the good news that Jesus loves you. He's proven it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to live it. So what, what's the way that they're going to influence people with it? Well, the boxes of love is through shepherding. They're going to give food to people. They're going to care for their needs, Right? Do you get how that works? Their passion is to share the gospel, but they're going to influence that by loving people, by being shepherds and caring for people or caring for the poor. To care for people who are hurting and, and have that in there. My primary one is evangelism as well. I want people to, to know that it influences me, that moves me. But my way of influencing people with evangelism isn't for me to go out on a soapbox and proclaim. It's apostolic. I want to see people start things. In their neighborhoods, in their homes, in the school, in conversations, in book clubs, with men, with women, with kids, as a way of sharing the love of Jesus in natural and ongoing relationships. Step into new territories and new frontiers where people aren't hearing about Jesus or think that they don't know a good news for them. So, what is yours? The whole part of today is we're, we're kind of looking for fusion, right? This sense where our gifts from last week and our, super, our supernatural gifts and our gifts would blend with our passions and create fusion. For those of you who have scientific minds, not like myself, I don't. But I know that fusion involves the releasing of, of particles for the sake of producing energy. And when these things come together, it produces energy. Energy in order to get us to move. Not in our own strength, but to move in the strength of the way God's wired us. And that's why we're doing this. We want us to move. We want us to be awakened with energy that God has for us that can only come from him. We believe that that's what happens when you join these two things, your gifts and your passions together. A reaction that unleashes a powerful form of energy in the way that God has formed you. Gifts plus passions, energy released, engagement. First Samuel 17, let me pray and close with this. This is verse 46 and 47. These were David's words to the giant. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. This was after the giant mocked him and said, you will never stop me. I'll crush you, is what the giant is saying, you know. And then David said this. This is the day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the, car- I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Know that when we talk about this, 
this is not by your own power and your own ingenuity and all of your gifts. There's a part to play in there. But it will be decisive and it will be known and it will be heard that it is by God's power. It is by his might that the Goliaths fall. And they will. But as we engage in it, it's by his might, not yours. May you remember the decisive battle of the greatest giant of all, death, sin, and Satan that was conquered through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Not by sword, not by javelin, but by the love of God. May you be moved by the Spirit of God to engage in holy conversations about your passion. May you be energized by His Spirit to say yes and to engage. May you not be moved by guilt or shame for for those of you who are weary. But God, may He show you steps or may He affirm you and say, I have you right where you are. You're doing good. I'm proud of you. But let me show you how I've wired you and what you're doing. Let me affirm you and say, well done. Take your stand. Keep going. So Jesus, confirm and affirm all that you're doing in your people. For the people who were here for six hours and heard a lot of talking and then came back today, have mercy, Lord. (laughs) But, But let life spill over in us by your grace. Let life spill over in my friends, and Lord. May we, be say, may we be able to say yes to what you're inviting us to, and may we see your power awakened. Come, Holy Spirit. May we step into the battle stations you're inviting us with you, and may we lock arms with one another for that journey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May you go in holy conversation as God brings up things unto your mind. Be blessed. Thanks, friends.